0: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to The CBish Show. I'm your host, Colin Bish. It's good to be back here and recording for Episode 7 of The CBish Show. Uh, It's been kind of tough recently to try and, like, you know, during the summer, I kind of just want to chill, but I'm trying to, like, get myself up. But, no, I still want to keep doing this uh, podcast because it really is exciting. The only issue is, you know, with basketball and hockey both, you know, potentially being one game away from the season, both seasons ending, you know, the only sports that are really going to be around by then, you know, that I'm, that I'm like familiar with are combat sports and baseball. And, you know, some people aren't really uh, familiar with so- those. So I've just, I've just been kind of like thinking of different ideas to use and then, um, flushing them all out. So I have one of those ideas at the very end of my podcast. That I'm going to talk about, um, for the uh for the NFL. But yeah, I just it not only like does it take a while to think about like um what these ideas could be, it takes a while to like actually like flesh them out and like explain why I think this is. So just to break it all down, first I'm going to uh first I'm gonna recap game four of the NBA finals, followed up with analyzing the new head coaches for the the biggest hires for nba uh, for like the nba head coaches there are five of those then i'm going to be talking about game four last night between the golden knights and the panthers ufc 289 a little recap there um then teofilo lopez versus Josh taylor a uh, big fight that happened at 140 junior welterweight last night in boxing and then i alluded to it a little earlier but i said i have one of these ideas i've been thinking about inserted into this podcast and what that is is i'm going to be talking about sophomore breakout candidates from the nfl so i'm going to be looking at i or i i'm not going to be but i looked at every nfl team and i chose you know one player from each team who i think is going to have a breakout season whether they're going to break into becoming a serviceable player whether they're going to break out to become a pro bowl all pro level player whatever the case may be so that's going, that's going to be how it goes. So starting off, Game 4 uh, between the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat, Aaron Gordon came up big for the Nuggets as they won Game 4 and they're one win, they're one win away from their first NBA title in franchise history. Gordon's Aaron Gordon's rebounding and paint presence has garnered much praise throughout the finals, but his offense took the best turn it could have last night after he sh- no a couple days ago it was he shot 11 of 15 from the field and 3 of 4 from 3 with 27 total nikola jokic once again came up big with a 23 point 12 rebound performance bruce brown continues to marvel off the bench he had 21 and he went 8 of 11 from the field hit a few threes Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo both again had great performances, but you know the overall struggle by the Heat, mainly by Gabe Vincent and Max Struess, once again reared its ugly head. The Heat also really haven't found their rhythm from three point, uh, from three point land. They shot only 32% on 25 three pointers to uh, Denver shooting 50% on 28 three pointers. So, and heck, even in game three, like they just you know there's been a different guy that's come up big in each of these nuggets wins you know game in every nuggets win it's been nicole Jokic. in game three or four it was game three um yokich and murray literally both had 30 point triple doubles which i think that's the first time in nba history that that's ever been done so an incredible stat line and even in Game Three, you had um, you had rookie Christian Brown come off the bench, score big, uh, score a big 15 points in Game Three to give the Nuggets the lead. And in this game, you got Bruce Brown coming big <laughs> off the bench and Aaron Gordon, who led the team in points. It's just like when you look at the Denver Nuggets and how they've been playing in this NBA Finals. They've been, it's just been a complete total team effort, and you can really see it, right? And there's also been something that's really nagging me about this uh, this NBA Finals that I feel like I need to address is the allegations of it being a boring NBA Finals. Okay, look, it is kind of boring. I'm gonna be real. Out, you know, once uh you know Heat won Game Two, you know, it's like oh this could be this could be pretty interesting, but these past two games have really swayed the um. These past two games, like it's not wrong to say that they've swayed uh, the momentum in the favor of Denver. Of course it has, you know. And now Miami's got their backs against the wall, um, heading into heading into Game Five. This uh, I think tomorrow it is, and now people are continuing to say like the Lakers versus Celtics would have been a better matchup. The Celtics should have been here. People are saying the Lakers should have should have been here. First of all, timeout. The Lakers got swept. That ship of the Lakers being in the NBA championship has sailed. Okay? It has sailed. It's gone. Forget about it. And as for the Celtics, if you want to take up, you know, the belief that the Boston Celtics should be in the NBA Finals right now, take that up with Jalen Brown. Right? Take it up with Jalen Brown. The fact that he played as bad as he did in the Eastern Conference Finals. Take it up with him if you're mad about the Celtics not being here. Don't blame the Nuggets or the Heat for capitalizing on the Lakers and Celtics shortcomings. And this is what I find extremely funny. This is what I find extremely funny. When the Cavaliers and the Warriors were going to the NBA Finals year after year after year after year from 2015 to 2018, everybody was complaining about, oh my gosh, the NBA is so boring. It has no parity. We want new teams in the Finals. Then... We have the first NBA Finals in year, Like, they literally said this. We've had the first NBA Finals in like forever where Kawhi Leonard, Steph Curry, and Nikola Jokic, were, or not Nikola Jokic, LeBron James weren't in it. We actually have an NBA Finals with parody. But once we have an actual NBA Finals with parody, like, you guys don't like it? You guys don't like it? Like, not too long ago, again, not too long ago. You guys were reveling in the Bucks versus Suns matchup, right? Not too long ago, you guys were, you know, wanting. Oh my gosh, we want something other than the Cavs and the Warriors all the time. You wanted something different. Now that you have something different, you're mad. You're upset. Like it. it it's oh man. Like oh, I don't know. My only conclusion to this, right? My only conclusion to how people who complained about the NBA having no parity when the Cavs and Warriors were always playing in the Finals to now complaining when the NBA Finals has parity is that, and I'm not talking to you guys listening, but y'all just like to complain. Y'all just like to complain. Like, people, all they do, like, if they don't like something, if something doesn't go their way, they're going to complain, they're going to cry and whine and, you know... It's gonna change. Like people are, people's opinions nowadays change on a whim, just like that. Like, and it's very, very annoying. It really is because I remember not too long ago when the Cavs and Warriors were always playing in the finals, and people were complaining about the NBA having no parity. And I was one of those people who wanted it. And you know, when the Heat got to the NBA finals in the bubble, when the Raptors won the championship, when the Bucks won the championship over the Suns you know even when the even when the warriors the people thought the warriors weren't going to do much the warriors came back and won a title you know i was cool with it and now we have the possibility of a team winning their first nba championship in history and y'all are just like i don't like it like save save the tears save the tears it is really annoying to hear you guys contradict not like you guys listen to this but it's really annoying to hear people continually contradict themselves with you know these stupid takes over and over. Oh, I don't. You know I want the NBA to have more parity, but as soon as the NBA gets more parity, you don't like it. Oh well. And for you guys saying that the the that the teams aren't interesting, let's break it down, right? So we've got one of the best players in the NBA. Not yet, yeah, one of the best players in the NBA. probably looking back on it now a three-time NBA MVP in Nikola Jokic right I think I think looking back on it now Nikola Jokic you know with if if we took regular season and playoffs into account you know Nikola Jokic is MVP right uh, how could and you're like oh his um I, I saw yesterday and it really made me upset. It really just didn't make sense. Is Stephen A. Smith said that Nikola Jokic has limited post game? Really? Does I, I I really think that people like Stephen A. Smith, like they say, oh I love basketball, but do you actually watch basketball? Like I understand he's been in basketball for decades, right? But does he actually watch the game? Because Nikola Jokic has one of the best post games, you know, probably ever. Definitely right now he has one of the best post games. You know, you can make the argument that he has one of the best post games ever. But there's a reason he's been cooking guys like Rudy Gobert, Carl Anthony Towns, DeAndre Ayton, uh, Anthony Davis, and Bam Adebayo this entire playoffs. It's because nobody can guard him in the paint. Nobody can guard his post game. So his post game is boring and it's lackluster. Save it. You've got Jamal Murray coming back from an ACL injury and having big-time performances, you know, to lead his team to an NBA Finals. And as for the Heat, they were five minutes away from not even being in this position. They were five minutes away from being eliminated by the Chicago Bulls. They come back, win that game, then be the number the number one team in the NBA in the Bucs. Then they beat the Knicks. Then they beat the Celtics after almost blowing a 3-0 lead in Game 7. Now they're here, and yeah, they're down 3-1, but... Why? So why are we saying that these guys aren't interesting? Not to mention the coaches, where we have to like, where we're like, we gotta acknowledge right now that Mike Malone and Eric Spoelstra are truly two of the best coaches in the NBA. With the ability, with how they're able to manage both of their teams. With Spolstra, you have him being able to make something out of nothing, and you know everyone's like, oh, don't make our um. Don't make our players, our drafted players, seem like just undrafted players. And I agree with that. But when you have these guys that come out of absolutely nowhere, like Vape Vincent and Max Strus and Duncan Robinson and they and Caleb Martin and they come out of nowhere and they perform incredibly well, like that's a testament to how good your coach is. When you got Michael Malone, you know, building Nikola Jokic into the player he was today and also creating an offense where he controls everything an offense and nobody's been able to stop so far in this postseason but don't worry don't worry the nba finals is boring i agree with the trajectory of how it is right now going into game five you know we could see a 4-1 nba finals you know it's it's not you know like it's not like get you know Cavs wars 2016 i get it but to say that this whole NBA playoffs has been a let this has been some of the best NBA bass playoff basketball in a long time. And all of you guys are just well, not you know, again, not you guys listening, but all these people are just complaining and whining about how it's boring and nobody wants to watch this, and we'd rather watch like her Celtics, ah, whatever. You know, truly, if anybody thinks that, and if anybody like listens to this that has these type of thoughts, I genuinely want to ask you. And I'm not not trying to be rude. Do you enjoy anything in your life? Because it seems like no matter what what happens in basketball, what happens in like just anything in sports, you know, anything happens, nobody's happy with it. Nobody's like accepting of it. And I get it. Like, you know, if your team lost, you're like, ah, you know, you're upset. I get it. But the fact that we're still having these narrative talks right now, about how the Lakers versus Celtics would be a better matchup, like, just stop it. The Lakers were never close to making that game, uh, making that series a series. They got swept. Get over it. The Celtics blew game seven. Get over it. We're past it. Focus on the basketball that we've got now. It's like, I feel like I've been going over this over and over and over again for like three episode straight about how people just can't accept that these that this NBA finals is good because people just don't know how to be happy with anything you know this is good thankfully though this is gonna be the last time I talk about it because like you know the NBA finals may be coming to an end but like it's just annoying man it's just it's just blah 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 and whine 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 this it's yeah god man I just don't understand how people just can't accept stuff. People nowadays just like to complain, and I guess it is what it is. But moving on, obviously, over the course of these playoffs, not only have um, not only has the playoffs go gone the way it has, you know, people like to complain. Uh, but you know, even with the Denver Nuggets and the Miami Heat still playing, there have been a multitude of teams. Who have fired some players and or not players but fired the coaches and brought new ones in so I brought the five biggest so I compiled the five biggest uh the five biggest uh NBA head coach hires to talk about them and what they bring to the team the first being Monty Williams to the Detroit Pistons Monty Williams the Phoenix Suns head coach was fired after um, the Suns had lost game six to the Denver Nuggets in the second round. And Monty signed with the Detroit Pistons after Dwayne Casey, I believe, he was the last coach, got let go. Monty got the largest contract ever for an NBA head coach at six years, $78.5 million. And what's really good about Monty Williams is how he was able to establish a winning culture in Phoenix. It began in the bubble when they went undefeated. Unfortunately, they didn't make the playoffs, but they were able to go on that torrid stretch and it carried to the next season where they brought in Chris Paul and Chris Paul, you know, with their first season with Chris Paul and Monty Williams second season, they were able to go to the NBA finals. They came up short, but you know, like, the potential was there. The next season, the potential showed when they when they won 64 games in 2022. Unfortunately, they did lose Game 7 to the Dallas Mavericks. And then this year, they got up to a slow start. They brought in KD. They made the series against the Denver Nuggets competitive, but they ultimately came up short. But when you look at what the Phoenix Suns were before Monty Williams came in. They were a joke. They were awful year in and year out. And he came in, established a winning culture with leadership. You know, he developed, Devin, he developed Devin Booker into a crazy good player, although he was a crazy good player already. Devin Booker just went to whole new levels once Chris Paul got there. He was able to make DeAndre Aiden a viable factor for the team, was able to develop players such as Mikal Bridges into all-NBA defense, into all NBA defense uh, caliber players, Cam Johnson became a great. Um, uh, Cam Johnson became a great bench piece, you know. And, and what really marked his time in uh, Phoenix was his offensive system called the .5 offense, which you either shoot, pass, or drive the ball in .5 seconds. And this is something that can greatly benefit the Detroit Pistons, <clears throat> considering their guards, you know kate cunningham at the point Jaden Ivey at the shooting guard you know kate cunningham's is one of the best young playmakers there is out there when he is healthy and i really think that kate cunningham could take off with this point five system for the detroit pistons i really like this hire um I really, really like this hire for the Detroit Pistons. I think it was the best hire they could have made. The contract it is—it's big. It's the biggest for a head coach in NBA history. But it's considering what Monty Williams did for the Phoenix Suns. You know, he went in, the team was awful, and he brought them to an NBA Finals, like two wins away from an NBA Finals from an NBA championship. Um, And then you think of where the Detroit Pistons are at now and how bad they are. You know, maybe we could see monty williams bring detroit eventually to a spot where they could be contending in the east but time will have to tell with that moving on to the western conference the houston rockets excuse me the houston rockets hired imi udoka udoka came to houston after leading the boston celtics to the nba finals in his first season as head coach and eventually during the offseason he had that weird fallout that involved an affair with a uh with a female assistant on the celtics he got fired joe Mazzulla took over and udoka's been kind of floating in the water um there were rumors that he would take the spot for the nets when steve nash got fired but jacques vaughn took over and he's the permanent head coach there now And Udoka now comes to the Houston Rockets, who are in dire need of stability. Despite the, you know, the fallout, which is very weird, Udoka's been praised for his player development. One of those, one of the best guys, one of the best examples of his player development has been Grant Williams, who went from a player that usually rode the bench, and once he got there, Grant Williams became a big part of the Celtics NBA Finals run, and hell, he's still a big piece for them right now. Uh, one thing that Udoka emphasizes that is really good is accountability and responsibility, and that's a little ironic considering the situation he got himself in. I get it, but oh well. It's it's huge for a team that, like, to be honest with you, and I talked—I I don't know if I talked about this before, but i have said it before—is that the Houston Rockets just looked like a glorified AAU squad this past season. It was just Jalen Green chucking up shots, not really—you know—there wasn't much offense and when you have you know skilled scorers like kevin porter jr who just look like dead weight and alfred shingun who just you know they're not really being used to the ability that they could be used like that that kind of falls on the point guard or the point guard or the shooting guard whatever you want to consider um Jalen green as i consider him a point guard because kevin porter jr is a pure scorer which is why i consider him a shooting guard but that falls on Jalen Green because you know your job as a point guard is not just a score. You gotta command an offense. You think about him like, you know, he's a scorer. He's not a smart scorer. He's he, he's he's just a scorer. You know, a good coach like Ime Odoka can maximize his potential and make him an all-around playmaker, a true point guard. It could probably and you know it's not gonna involve him making. It's not gonna always involve him making the flashy plays and scoring thirty or forty a night. But it's going to apply to the team winning games and the entire team um, excelling. Not just Jalen Green, which I think is very important. With a lot of these young players coming out now, is like you know they kind of just do what they do. Like you know nobody really teaches them like how to actually play basketball. It's just make the play yourself. Don't like and most of it's not even involving the other team. That's kind of what we saw last season from Jalen Green. So I think a coach like Amy Udoka, who's known for holding his players accountable, um and improving them, obviously as I said with Grant Williams, I think Jalen Green can I think can bring a lot out of Jalen Green, and I think we could see the best of Jalen Green if all goes right. Moving up back to the Eastern Conference, I've got the Milwaukee Bucks who hired Adrian Griffin for those of you who might not know who that is, Adrian Griffin spent the last six years as an assistant for the Toronto Raptors, leading Toronto to many successful seasons, including the NBA championship in 2019. Griffin also played nine years in the league. He was known for being a gritty and tough defender. His coaching style reflects that type of play, and you know, with the top defenders on that team like Giannis Antetokounmpo and Drew Holiday and Brooke Lopez, he could certainly bring a new level of toughness on defense to Milwaukee with the great defenders that they already have. Griffin is also known for being a great player developer as he's credited with being a big contributor in the development of Jimmy Butler when Griffin was an assistant in Chicago. So, you know... You think of the young guys on there that are that kind of just sat in the weights, particularly Marjon Beauchamp who you know he flashed potential but really not to but really didn't get his you know shine in the NBA you know maybe Beauchamp can become like Jimmy Butler and Griffin can develop him and make him an impact type of player for the Milwaukee Bucks I think it was a good hire um, it's very under the radar you know he's not a big name that you know a lot of people know about but nonetheless, he's a good coach. He exemplifies grit and toughness, as I said, with his defense. And for a team that has that many good defenders as it has, you know, maybe we could see a different Milwaukee Bucks team than what we saw in that first-round series against the Miami Heat. Staying in the Eastern Conference, moving over to Philadelphia with the 76ers, they hired former Raptors head coach Nick, Sner- Nick Nurse Uh, they're, you know, Philadelphia is very dire right now as they attempt to try and make it past the second round for the first time since Alvin Allen Iverson led them to the NBA finals back in 2001 nurse. Obviously he's bringing that championship pedigree with him with that 2019 championship. What's important to note is how Nick nurse transformed a team going through turmoil. So prior to 2019 when the Raptors won it all, the Raptors experienced multiple playoff failures, you know, in 2016 they came up short against Cleveland Cavaliers, 2017 same story, 2018 same story. You know, the the legend of LeBronto. Uh, but but after Dwayne Casey was fired in after 2019, Nick Nurse took over and he was able to right the ship and lead them to a championship in his first season. And this coming season presents the possibility of a master ro- massive roster shift for the Philadelphia 76ers. <clears throat> Obviously, James Harden's a free agent. Uh, Tobias Harris and PJ Tucker may get moved. Multiple role players are free agents, <clears throat> me, such as like George Niang, Shake Milton, Jalen McDaniels, Paul Reed. And looking at how this is all going, I think we could see a whole new Sixer squad this next season, constructed for Nick Nurse's no nonsense approach to basketball. Particularly, he likes to use more athletic and faster wings. You know, a la Scotty Barnes and Tobias Harris and P.J. Tucker. They don't really provide much of that. Yeah, Harris is a good scorer and Tucker's a gritty defender. But I think with um, I think Nick Nurse, I think he can find better players that fit his coaching style and I think it's a good hire for the Sixers as well and you know with this coming season being incredibly big you know we don't know the future of James Harden i to be honest with you I think it's good if James Harden leaves I think it opens the door for Tyrese Maxey to really develop into an all-around playmaker uh, but I think you know this is a good hire with time will have to tell what happens with the 76ers <clears throat> And moving on to the final team, the Phoenix Suns. Uh, They hired Frank Vogel, a former head coach of the Indiana Pacers, Orlando Magic, and Los Angeles Lakers. Vogel has commanded top 10 defenses in seven of his 11 seasons as a head coach. He's not the flashiest hire. It's kind of like Adrian Griffin, you know, but it doesn't have to be because the Suns' defensive prowess, they were one of the better defensive teams in 2022. They took a dip in the playoffs, especially against Denver. So with a guy who's as... Um, defensively-minded as Frank Vogel. It's really big for that team. He also has a tendency to gain the best out of players, particularly one of the best examples is Roy Hibbert, uh, George Hill, Alex Caruso. It's important noting that the Suns, you know, like or it's important to note, like, the Suns, you know, Having released CP3, or they're soon to be doing so, depending on what happens, they. Get, I think it's important that they gain important role players, not just for depth, but also for the po- possibility that, you know, Vogel brings the best out of these players. You know, this could be even case with DeAndre Ayton, who, he's at a very pivotal point in his career with, you know, his lackluster performance and guarding Jokic in the playoffs and how he played offensively. It's very big, um, you know, to bring in Vogel. And... One of the things that's always been Vogel's criticism is, is that he's not very offensive-minded. However, the Suns were able to retain one of their top associate coaches, Kevin Young, who many thought might leave for a head coaching job. They were able to, um, They were able to retain him, and Kevin Young has been a big part of the Suns' success offensively over these past few years, and I think it was really important that they did that, and you know they bring in a defensive mastermind like Frank Vogel, you know we could see a diff- we could see definitely see a different Suns team next season, like phew, there's a possibility. Like they're saying, like James Harden might go to Phoenix, which I'm just telling you all right now: James Harden goes to Phoenix, they're not winning a championship. Okay, they're just not. They won't. I'm 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 saying it right now. They won't, because super teams don't work because. At some point or another, you know, all, like, these players, they just fall off of cliffs. They fall off of cliffs of the playoffs. James Harden is one of those players. I, I, like, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if I trust him in the playoffs. I don't know if I ever could. It's, it's like, with how he performed in game six and seven, just like, no, man. Just no. But all in all, for the Suns, you know, I think they're big, I think their biggest, most important, um, like what they have, their biggest goal has to be to get depth because that's what they lacked in um the in the playoffs is they just lacked um, adequate amount of depth. Once they got Kevin Durant, they had to trade you know McCall, they had to trade McCall Bridges, they had to trade um I'm trying to think, they had to trade McHale Bridges, Cam Johnson, they had to trade a lot of guys that were important to their depth and important pieces of their team. So I think it's important that they go out this season and get those veteran, you know, it doesn't matter who they are, just guys that have that bring depth to the team. And I think, uh, like, I, for the hire in general, I think it's good because, you know, I it would be a bit iffy if Kevin Young went elsewhere, but because Kevin Young remained with the Phoenix Suns, I find this to be a very good hire because you get best of both worlds. You get a guy who commanded um one of the top offenses the past few years in the Phoenix Suns and you get a guy who's known for def- his defensive uh, wizardry as a head coach. So I think it's you know the best of both worlds and we'll see what happens to the Phoenix Suns next season. Oh man. Moving on to hockey, Game 4 took place last night. Chandler Stephenson's two goals put the Knights up 3-0, and Vegas was able to survive a last-second scare to take a 3-1 series lead. They are now one to win away from their first Stanley Cup championship. The aforementioned Stephenson scored to give Vegas the lead in the first 1-0, Stevenson then netted another, and William Carlson scored as well to make a 3-0 in the second period. But Brandon Montour scored to cut the lead to 3-1, headed to the third. Alexander Barkov scored early to make a 3-2, and Florida had a big last-second opportunity to tie the game. But Matthew Kachuk's rebound goal attempt was blocked, and the horn sounded. The Knights won a 3-2 net. They got a narrow victory 3-2, and they're headed back to Vegas with the possibility of closing this out at T-Mobile Arena. It was a very... Like this series so far. These two past two games. Um, against the Panthers. And the Knights have been absolute bangers. You have Vegas. Who's up 2-1. You know with under 3 to go. Matthew Kuchuk who gets injured. In game late. Or in game 3 who got hurt. Comes back. Scores the game tire. And then Carter Verhage. Nets the overtime winning goal. To keep the Panthers afloat. And then you know next... Next game, Vegas comes out hot. Uh, Florida gets back into it close, but, you know, they were not able to take advantage. Vegas goes back up 3-1. And, you know, this has been a very fun series for what it is. It truly has. You know, the first two... I mean, it's been much tougher in Florida than it's been in Vegas. And Vegas, obviously, um, Vegas won both of those games... Commandingly, they outscored the Panthers 14 to 4 in games one and two, but games three and four have really ignited this series. Game three was a really fun game in overtime. Game four was insane, down to the wire in that third period, and now the Vegas Golden Knights are on the verge of their first um, Stanley Cup final, Stanley Cup ever. And what their they their franchise like came into existence like five six years ago. Like, that's crazy, you know? I mean, the possibility of Vegas winning a championship does kind of suck because Vegas' current coach, Bruce Cassidy, was the coach for the Boston Bruins for a long time, so it kind of hurts. But with the way Vegas has been playing right now, particularly guys like Jonathan um, who's netted like three or four goals in the Stanley Cup playoffs, and Aiden Hill, who's been absolutely insane in these playoffs and the Stanley Cup, you know, it, it it really shows you like how like just how levels above vegas is to everyone else they've been absolutely dominant in these playoffs they did have a couple of scares like particularly in the western conference finals against the dallas stars when they were up 3-0 and they let two get away but they were able to come back in game six and close it out um to advance to the stanley cup finals and now they have a chance to win their first ever Stanley Cup. They are able to get the win on Tuesday. Moving on to the combat sports. <clears throat> uh, UFC 289 took place last night. Amanda Nunes dominates and hangs up the gloves. Charles Dubronx Oliveira finished Benil Darius in the first. And Canadian prospect Mike Malott shined in his finished win over Adam Fugit. So main event first Amanda Nunez versus Irene Aldana the fight completely went in Amanda's favor She systematically dissected Aldana on both the ground and on the feet, you know Although you know Aldana did land a big right hand in the first But that was kind of all that went well for her Nunez absolutely wiped the floor with her challenger retained her title After the win she announced her retirement which leaves the women's bantamweight and featherweight titles vacant the women's featherweight division is likely going to be no more because, you know, there's no real contenders there. And Chris Cyborg probably is never going to compete in the UFC again. You know, not right now. She's a champion in Bellator. And as for the bantamweight, there's likely there's going to be a few notable contenders there. The three that come to mind are Juliana Pena, Raquel Pennington, and Holly Holm. So we'll see what happens there. First thing I want to say is congratulations to Amanda Nunes on an incredibly fantastic career. One of, no, not one of, the best women's MMA fighter in the history of the... You can, People make their case for Ronda Rousey all the time. But what Amanda Nunes has done is everyone that stood in front of her, she has absolutely dominated. And even when she lost that fight to Juliana Pena, she came back and absolutely wiped the floor with Juliana. You know, most champions you know you never see that happen and you know as daniel Cormier said last night you know all the way from strike force to the ufc amanda Nunes has been tearing it up and she will certainly go down as the greatest women's fighter in mma history and she will certainly become a ufc hall of famer congratulations to amanda Nunes on a fantastic career and you know, for what it holds for the future of the bantamweight division, will left to be seen. But as for right now, those three women stand alone as you know the only got ga- as the, like the only gals you know that are in that conversation to fight um, for the title. I think Juliana Pena will get. I think it's going to be Juliana Pena versus Raquel Pennington because. Pena was originally slated to fight our, uh, Amanda Nunes until she pulled out with an injury, and Raquel Pennington was the backup in this fight. So I think Dana will you know, connect those dots. I think he's going to make that fight, and we will have a new face of the Bantamweight division from here on out. To the co-main event, Charles DuBonc Oliveira took on Benil Dariush. Dubronch came out firing in the first. He landed a head kick early in the first. Oliveira was able to tag Darius with another head kick later in the first round before landing a flurry of punches before Dariush was helpless. Referee had to stop the fight, and Charles Oliveira picked up a TKO victory in his first fight since he lost to Islam Mikashev. He came off a devastating loss to Islam, and many thought Dariush Dariush came into this fight winning winning eight in a row. He could get, you know, many thought he could get the upper hand over Oliveira. I thought he could, but that was not the case, and Dubronx, you know, he completely, you know, he completely dominated Dariush, and considering how hot Dariush was, this certainly sets up a potential rematch for Charles Dubronk's Oliveira against Islam Mikashev. You know, it could come as early as October in Abu Dhabi, we don't know. But is but considering that, you know, we really what happened in this fight is one thing I was questioning was how would Charles look after that devastating loss? And I was shut up really fast when Charles mopped the floor with Daryush and it's clear to me that he's going to be next in line for a lightweight title shot against Islam Mikashev. You know, and I think it's I think it's a pretty cool thing, but You know, you got to, that question's always there. You know, if Charles wins the, uh, if Charles wins that matchup, you know, who does he fight next? Because he's beating every other guy in the top five, you know, outside of Mikashev, you know, but we're we're hypothetically thinking that, you know, he'll beat Mikashev so you know he beats him then who does he fight because he submitted Poirier, submitted Gaethje, knocked out Chandler, knocked out Darius like you know it's like who is he going to fight you know but nonetheless that will be for that will be for down the road we'll see what happens there but Charles Oliveira came back strong and he got an amazing ovation from the Vancouver crowd speaking of Vancouver and well not so much Vancouver but Canada in general one of the more i so i gotta say this like me personally i'm not familiar with most of the unranked guys in the ufc and like anybody outside like the rankings in the ufc like the top guys or gals like you know pfl or one championship or bellator i'm not familiar with them you know i'm kind of a casual i'll admit it i understand they're all incredible in their own right but i don't know much of them and that being said i was very impressed last night by mike malott um, last night, Milot submitted Adam Fugit in dominant fashion, showcasing both great grappling and great striking. And this guy is certainly a welterweight to keep your eyes on in the future. He's three and zero in the UFC. He's got a total record of ten wins, one loss, one draw as a pro. Ten of his wins being fit, all ten of his wins were finishes. Nine of them came in the first round. He's only thirty one years old. And, you know, keep, in, keep an eye on this guy. He's already made a mark in the UFC being undefeated. So keep an eye out for Mike mullah He could be a true welterweight contender in the future. And the final, uh, excuse me, the final um, I'm sorry, the final headline of combat sports was last night's, I, th- I think it was last night's, um, I was watching 289, so I don't remember, but I believe it was last night. The junior welterweight super fight between Josh Taylor and Teofimo Lopez. Teofimo dominated Josh Taylor to become WBO and lineal junior welterweight champ. It was a big win for reeling Lopez. You know, he came off. He's not only dealing with controversial bouts. Like, he had a really controversial decision against Sandor Martin. And he also had that really bad loss. The upset of the year that they called. that It was ESPN's upset of the year in 2021 when he lost to George Cambosos you know he, he wasn't only dealing with like you know a string of fights where it just like he didn't look like the fighter he once was he also was dealing with a lot of personal issues that you know i kind of don't really care to talk about because you know, that's his deal and i think i sh- you know i think i should you know stay away from that but lopez came into this fight and he absolutely dominated the the very very skilled josh taylor Lopez landed 31% of total punches and 40% of power punches, while Taylor only landed 24% total punches, 30 excuse me, 31% power punches. The fight was a little close up until the fourth, where Lopez took over, he landed massive punch after massive punch. Shirley moved the bout in his favor. Tiafimo won by unanimous decision. Convincingly. I think it was 115, 113. One judge, another judge, same another judge also had it 115, 113. And I think another judge had it like 117, 111. I'm not sure, but it was something like that. And and TFMO absolutely dominated this fight, you know. Credit to him, all the stuff he's been dealing with over the past few years, you know, the loss to Cambosos, the controversial bouts, the, the uh, personal issues that I mentioned. You know, you got to understand, like, you know, this this is definitely taking a toll on this guy. You know, question, you know, he said before, like, he's his worst critic. He's asked himself, like, you know, do I still got it? Certainly, it showed like he still got it after he dominated Josh Taylor like he did last night. And, as for Josh Taylor, he's looking, he said he's going to be looking up to move up to welterweight. So, we'll see what happens there in the future for Josh Taylor. But, for and Lopez, a great win. Congratulations to him. So, Moving on to my big section, and this is one of the ideas that I was alluded to before. And I'll basically remind you guys: I picked a, I I went through every team in the NFL, and I picked a breakout candidate for that is a sophomore. So talking about team or players that were drafted in twenty twenty two coming into this year. And before I start, let me get a water break. All right, good. Uh, so starting out with the Arizona Cardinals, I have their breakout player as the as edge rusher Cameron Thomas. Arizona's most pressing need for this season is edge. JJ Watt retired, and both Marcus Golden and Zach Allen left in free agency. Zach Allen got that big contract with the Broncos. The Cardinals right now are attempting to right the ship as they drafted B.J. Ojolari. They've been ta- they've been moving Davin Collins to edge. Both can certainly play there, but I think what sets apart. Cameron Thomas is his new, his slimmer size. Third round pick out of San Diego State. Last year he was 272. He came into OTAs, this, he came to offseason workouts at 255. And despite only playing 20% of defensive stats for Arizona, he amassed three sacks. So he's shown he could produce despite a small sample size. He's also been praised by head coach Jonathan Gannett for his movement and pass rush skills, evident by his pass rush grade. From PFF at 70.5. So f- so, so f- to get you guys um, up to speed with like PFF grades. Basically any PFF grade that's a 60 is like an average. So he's re- so he's above average when it comes to pass rushing. So it's already shown that he can be able. You know we saw you know the pass rush ability when he was 272. Imagine what we could see when he's 255. He'll have to compete with you know Zayvon Collins, B.J. Ojolari. And other players such as uh, fellow sophomore Myjay Sanders and veteran Dennis Gardick. but Thomas should certainly see a massive uptick in playing time due to Arizona's need for pass rushers. And we could and we could see what the former Aztec is capable of with more snaps. You know, as I said, despite only playing about 20 snaps, 20 percent of snaps last season, he did produce. He had three sacks. He's shown that he can rush the passer well, and I think he's going to be a big player for a team that's looking to rebuild you know and try to rebuild that edge rushing i think is going to be big for the arizona cardinals <clears throat> moving on to the atlanta falcons i have drake london wide receiver with the lack of receiving depth in atlanta drake london is surely primed to have a monster year especially with Ded- desmond ritter likely to be under center london's praise his connection with second year player and it shows on the stat sheet London caught 25 of 36 passes from Ritter and had 333 yards, giving him a 69.4% catch percentage of ca- ca- 69.4 catch percentage. His numbers with Marcus Mariota were noticeably different, as he caught only 47 of Mariota's 81 targets for 533 yards and four touchdowns, and that was like 50% 58% uh, catch percentage. With the thin depth of wide receiver outside of Kyle Pitts and London's budding connection with Ritter, it gives me confidence that we could see London transcend to a Pro Bowl or, you know, possibly a borderline All-Pro level this coming season. I really like Drake London coming out of college. Um, I think he was one of the better receivers, and he deserved to go uh, top ten. You know, even though he got hurt, you know, the numbers show that he could be a really big-time player. And I'm really excited for him coming into next this next season. Moving on to the Baltimore Ravens, I have another edge rusher in David Ojabo. Many were excited about him, who had a great season alongside Aiden Hutchinson in 2021 for Michigan. However, Ojabo unfortunately tore his Achilles during a pre-draft workout. It was his pro day, I believe. He was still picked up by Baltimore in the second round. He would play in the last two games of Baltimore's seasons, picking up a sack in Week week 18 versus Cincinnati. He's big, fast, a monster pass rusher like Ojabo. was a coveted piece for any NFL team especially for Baltimore. They've been looking for a premier pass rusher ever since Terrell Suggs retired. And, you know, or, or well, Terrell Suggs left and went to Arizona, I remember that, somehow. And, you know, Matt Junon's departure hurt while, you know, Odafe away and Tyus Bowser haven't really taken off. Ojabo says he's gained muscle, which could help him with his weaker, weaker run support. But as a pure pass rusher, if we're talking about getting to the quarterback, Ojabo could be exactly what the Ravens need. And, you know, prior to him tearing his Achilles, many thought this guy as a first-round prospect. And I think this coming season, we're really going to see what Ojabo can do with a full season. To the Buffalo Bills, I have James Cook running back. While the Bills' interior offensive line was criticized heavily for a lack of a run game, it didn't help with having a lackluster Devin Singletary, and outside of that, not much else. That was until James Cook, the younger brother of Dalvin Cook, showed out in his first season with limited playing time. Cook notched 89 carries for 508 rushing yards and two touchdowns with a fantastic 5.7 yards per carry. With Devin Singletary gone, Cook should likely take over the starting running back position. You know, that is unless his brother Dalvin comes to Buffalo, which I don't think he will. I think Dalvin will go to Miami. He's been kind of, Dalvin Cook's been kind of alluding to going to Miami, but we'll see how that goes. You know, towards the end of the year, the coaching staff displayed more confidence as Cook continued to play more snaps, including a year-high 56% of plays played in Week 18 against the Patriots. Cook was also very elusive and explosive. He notched 19 forced missed tackles and 12 run plays of 10 yards or more. So, like... Sorry, I need water. Uh, But we saw, you know, despite the limited amount of snaps that James Cook had last season, we saw what he can truly do... um, You know given you know you've given the ball a 5.7 yards per carry was like second to uh, among all rookies to Brees Hall I think it was like second in the NFL I'm not sure but 5.7 yards per carry is very good and I'm very excited to see what's in store for James Cook in this coming season and you know the Buffalo Bills they've revamped their offensive line they brought in Osiris Torrance You know, so hope and hopefully we'll see a a better run game out of Josh out of the Bills because you know can't expect Josh Allen to run the ball all the time. You know he might get hurt, which is which is not good. We don't want that. For the Carolina Panthers, I have offensive tackle Akeem Akuanu. While it's important that Bryce Young develops for Carolina, I find it great for him that he's likely going to have a sturdy left tackle protecting his blind side. Wallach one who showed his struggles as a rookie you know last year he surrendered 13 penalties he also showed a lot of promise he went on a 10 game stretch without allowing a sack the Panthers line were incredible down the stretch commanding a top tier rushing offense. And they allowed very few sacks. Not only that, Equanu is under two rate coaches and Frank Reich and James Campman, the offensive line coach for the Carolina Panthers, who's noted as being an offensive lineman guru. The latter, he, he, he Campman Campin actually praised Equanu's fluidity and ability to learn. His ability to mirror pass rushers gives me confidence in protecting the young rookie sensation. And his size, his tenacity, his strength, you know, that he showed last season – allows him to be a monster run blocker for miles sanders you know and as i said that offensive line last year it wasn't incredible but iguanu christensen um gosh i forget who's else on the offensive line but you you think of that offensive line you know it's it's not full of you know many big players uh, they they also have taylor moton but they were incredible last year at right tackle and with the improvements being made this, this offseason for Akeem Ikwanu, I think we're going to see a more well-rounded Equanu for the rookie Bryce Young. Moving to the Chicago Bears, I have an, another offensive tackle, and this time Braxton Jones. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the offensive line was a big knee coming into 2022, and it really showed that they needed even more in 2023. But one big surprise from that lackluster group was Braxton Jones, fifth round pick out of Southern Utah. Jones played all left tackle snaps, all of them, in 2022 and he earned all rookie honors. His pass block his pass blocking left much to be expected, but his run blocking was superb and his pass blocking could hey, you know it, it can improve it in 20 into 2023. His football awareness and IQ is one of his most important attributes. While well, he's also put in work to gain more power for anchoring, and he's been working with former Bears great Olin Crutts to work his te- technique. You know, he got a full season—I mean, full, full season under his belt, and I think that you know, Braxton Jones, he could be primed for a big season and help Justin Fields become an even better quarterback. Um, and, and then now you've got Darnell right on the right side that that doesn't, you know. That doesn't bode a lot of pressure for Darnell Wright to try and slot in at left tackle. You know, Darnell Wright moves over to right tackle, which he did play in college. But, you know, left tackle, it's been manned well by Braxton Jones. He's only a fifth-round pick, but he showed that despite that fifth-round pedigree, he's came in and he's, he's played really well, and I'm really excited to see more out of him next season. Moving on to the Cincinnati Bengals, I have safety Daxton Hill. What makes this pick interesting is how dire and neat Cincinnati has for safety. You know, one of the best safety tangents in the NFL, no more, Jesse Bates the third, and Von Bell left in free agency. And Cincinnati was preparing for this by, they signed Nick Scott, they drafted Jordan Battle, and now they're taking the aforementioned Dax Hill, and they took, well, they were preparing for this when they took Dax Hill in 2022. <clears throat> Uh, defensive coordinator Lou Anaruma prides the safety position, so I'm sure he could set up the uber-athletic Dax Hill to take up the free safety spot while Scott plays strong safety. But whatever, wherever Nick Scott or Jordan Battle play, it allows Dax Hill to have more range at free safety of reading the plays and producing turnovers. Using both players' skills, and um, Hill's best skill is his athleticism, um, it allow like, well, oh, I messed that up. <laughs> But using um, Nick Scott's skills um, along with Jordan Battle, Jordan Battle's a bit more. um, He Jordan Battle's a bit more. uh, What's the word? Uh, He's a bit more experienced with other positions. So he's played strong safety. He's played slot. He's played nickel. So he could, you know, wherever these guys uh, play. It can help Dax Hill use his own skills, as I said, his great athleticism to blossom into a great player, which is incredibly important for a team in need of safety help now. I think we're going to see a lot of great things out of Dax Hill this coming season. Because if you think about it, Jesse Bates was in the same position as Hill once was. And we saw how Jesse Bates turned out. And with Hill being a. I think Hill's a lot more athletic than Bates. So. You know, we'll see. Um, I think we'll see a lot of good stuff from Dax Hill this coming season. Gosh, I try to cough away from that, but it always picks it up. Anyways, moving on to the Cleveland Browns, I've got quarterback Martin Emerson. Cleveland looks to be accumulating, accumulating a solid defensive back group. Uh, they brought in Rodney McLeod Jr. as a backup safety and Jawan Thornhill as a starting safety. While the quarterbacks could surprise people, you've got Denzel Ward there, and they also got Greg Newsome. But one of the more interesting defensive backs for the Browns is Martin Emerson, who had a great season in a very thin cornerback room for a sputtering Brown squad. The pick last year surprised many, um, you know, them selecting Emerson, but he shot down those with strong with a strong rookie season former mississippi state bulldog notched a 72.5 pff grade top 25 amongst all corners and forced an incompletion on 20 percent of passes thrown his way the browns have done a solid job of revamping their defense for 2023 which was a big problem last season they brought in jim schwartz as their new defensive coordinator emerson's productive 2022 could pay dividends to his play next year in a top heavy quarterback um division you got you got burrow in there you got lamar jackson you got kenny pickett i'm gonna get to him later you know, I already spoiled it right there. But, and not just, you know, the AFC North, but, like, the entire AFC. you got Aaron Rodgers, Josh Allen, uh, Chua Vailoa, you got Pat Mahomes. You know, maybe Russell Wilson's bound for a bounce back. Justin Herbert, Trevor Lawrence. Like, it's a top-heavy quarterback league. And when you've got a guy like Martin Emerson there who showcased that he's able to pester wide receivers and create um, incomplete passes you know i'm very confident in martin emerson mainly because i'm a browns fan and i'm trying to be confident about all the team not just him but i really like martin emerson i really liked him last season i think he's fantastic and i think he's going to be a really big i think he's going to be a lot better when you put him in the slot um because you, you got greg newsome and denzel ward they'll man the outside martin emerson did kind of struggle um in the outside last year Um, But I really am excited for what Martin Emerson brings to the table next season. This, uh, for the Dallas Cowboys, this pick was pretty hard. And what makes it so hard is that the Cowboys had many fantastic rookies in 2022. Sam Williams can make some noise as a situational pass rusher behind Micah Parsons and Demarcus Lawrence. I was really, really close to picking cornerback De'Ron Bland. He notched five picks for the Cowboys last year and shown great promise at slot which bodes well for Trayvon Diggs and the newly quiet Stephon Gilmore. However, due to the need for a team, I went with offensive guard Tyler Smith. The Cowboys off of the line was in dire need for, of help when the team selected Tyler Smith, and the rookie out of Tulsa helped greatly. He came in, and what really helps is he played well. Like, what really helps him is his incredible versatility being able to switch from left guard to right tackle and even left tackle if tyron smith were to get hurt he'd go over to left tackle if need be his athleticism allows him to seal the edge against rushers so no matter where smith plays he's bound to be a key blocker in a big year for dak prescott and i really liked uh, tyler smith too he had a good pff grade last year i'm very confident in him and They've been and for the Dallas Cowboys, they've been mixing and matching a lot of stuff on the offensive line. Um, they've had Tyler Smith at left guard, um, but they've also had him at the, they've also had him at right tackle while other players get reps at left guard. So we'll see what the Cowboys go with this year as they try to fill the top five blockers for next season. Moving to the Denver Broncos, I've got tight end Greg Dolchich. What worries me about picking Dolchich is how he fares in Sean Payton's offense. Payton's been known to pride in blocking tight ends with his vertical style offense, which explains as to why he signed, is why the Broncos signed Adam Troutman because he's a great blocker at tight end. While Dolchich is known for being one of the worst uh, blockers, tight end blockers in the or worst blocking tight ends in the league. But despite his blocking deficiency, Dolchich's receiving ability is not questionable. He's one of the best of. A, he's one of the best receiving tight ends of last year's draft class. Despite playing only ten games while dealing with hamstring issues, Dolchich racked up four hundred eleven yards on thirty three catches with a pair of touchdowns. So even with Adam Traubman's use as a pure blocker, I think Dolchich is going to see much more uses as a vertical threat for a hopefully better Russell Wilson. And if you want to take this right, Sean Payton's been able to help. Why uh, he's been able to help tight ends with what with blocking deficiencies become great receivers case in point marcus colston now i don't think greg dolce is going to become a full receiver but i do think that sean payton's a great enough coach that he's able to maximize dolce's receiving abilities while minimizing his blocking deficiencies moving to the detroit lions and there's a ton of players you could pick here you know you could make the argument that james hutch or aiden hutchinson could make a leap to a top tier edge or kirby joseph you know you could argue he can he he could become a premier playmaking safety but the one guy that caught my eye for detroit was jackson state's james houston the fourth sixth round pick he despite despite only notching 12 tackles on the year he finished 2nd on the team with 8 sacks, showcasing his incredible pass rushing ability. He was called up from the practice squad against the Bills on Thanksgiving, and he went on to, he went on to sack Josh Allen twice in just 5 plays. If that doesn't tell the whole story, it doesn't, He just know that he napped 17 quarterback pressures on just 92 rushes. Houston's small stature, coupled with his athleticism and length, allows him to bend around and lean past tackle to get pressure. And... Going into next season, I I think it's going to be very scary if you got to go up against the Detroit Lions because you're going to have Aiden Hutchinson on one side and you're going to have James Houston on the other. Both guys are monster pass rushers, so it's going to be a struggle for tackles to protect both guys from getting to the quarterbacks. Water break. <laughs> Moving on to the Green Bay Packers, I've got defensive lineman Devontae Wyatt. Life without Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay certainly presents newfound fascinations with the team. All eyes are going to be on Jordan Love, but in this case, many are. But in this case, you know you're looking at uh, rookies coming into their sophomore season. Many many people are going to be watching Christian Watson, who had a fantastic rookie year. However, just like the Cowboys, I find positional need is just as, if not more important than the most impressive rookie. Additionally, I aim for this to be more of a low-key pick rather than names are people already figured. Hence, defensive tackle Devontae Wyatt. Wyatt played more of a backup role behind Dean Lowry and Jerron Reed, but both are gone in free agency, so now the door is open for Wyatt to make his mark as the full-time starter at defensive end. Former Georgia Bulldog in his backup role, tally eight pressures and one and a half sacks in his backup role, and Wyatt should certainly see an uptick of development considering he started at defensive end in OTAs. What's very impressive about Wyatt is his athleticism, which he showcased in the limited amount of snaps he played. As I said, you know, he played, like, he played, what did I say? Like, oh, gosh, I forgot. He didn't play a lot. He played in a backup role, as I mentioned. But, uh, again, eight pressures, one and a half sacks. For a guy in a backup role, that's pretty impressive. And I think we're going to see, uh, I think we're going to see Devontae Wyatt prove his first-round draft pick pedigree this coming season. To the Houston Texans, I picked Jalen Petrie. You could look on paper and see that Jalen Petrie loaded up the stat sheet Excuse me. He nashed over 100 tackles and nabbed five interceptions. However, he also missed 36 tackles. But with Petrie's instincts, I believe he can make adjustments to be able to come uh, to become a more sure tackler. One could argue for Derek Stingley Jr., the third overall pick, but Petrie's better production won me over. However, you know both players being drafted changed the Texas defensive in a defense in a massive way. His past season, Houston was top ten in takeaways per game in 2022. Both Stingley and Petrie were big parts of that. While the team has way, they got a long way to go defensively. Petrie's play was very promising in 2022 stat-wise, and he could definitely fix his tackling issues this coming season. Petrie missed the same amount of tackles in his Baylor career, 36, as he did in his rookie season. So it's fair to assume that he's going to fix the issues. He's been known as a is a fair tackler for his entire college career, and I don't. I I truly think that with D'Amico Ryan's there with how good of a coach he is I think he could definitely fix that deficiency in Petrie's game moving on to the Indianapolis Colts staying in the AFC South I have tackle Bernhard Reinman the biggest issue for Indy throughout their poor season wasn't just subpar quarterback play which is why they drafted Anthony Richardson but awful offensive line play however one good sign down the stretch was highly touted Mac prospect Bernhard Reinman the former Central Michigan Chippewa didn't start until week 5 due to multiple injuries and bad play. But after struggling in the start, he was able to hold his own against a good Broncos pass rush in his first start. He also uh, went up against and did very well against solid, elite pass rushers like Matt Judon and Micah Parsons. Ryman was fantastic down the stretch. He notched a 77.1 PFF grade in the second half of 2022. Also very solid in both run and pass blocking a 74 grade or better in both categories, he's a very good all-around tackle, and he's going to be a very big—he's going to be a very big piece in Anthony Richardson's development, protecting his blind side and allowing him to make the plays. I'm very excited about her, Bernhard Ryman. I think he's one of the more underrated players coming into this season, not just as a sophomore but as a player in general. I'm really excited about him because he's just so solid overall as both a run blocker, as both a pass blocker. I think he's going to be a very big key. And, you know, if Anthony Richardson would succeed, I think Berhard Ryan is going to play a very big part in it. Moving on to the Jacksonville Jaguars, I've got linebacker Devin Lloyd. The Jags made surprising strides down the stretch of 2022. However, it seemed like the opposite for first-rounder Devin Lloyd. He got off to a hard stop, hot start um but after that Lloyd struggled hard his but his new position in 2023 should help he spent most of 2022 as an outside linebacker Jacksonville defense coordinator Mike Caldwell said Lloyd will be moving to the middle linebacker where he will likely be more open with blitz schemes he knocked 16 tackles six pass six pass breakups and two picks in his first three games and then Lloyd slumped and eventually saw his snap count dwindle but it did not lower his spirits. Eventually, he came back. He returned to the start at linebacker role and finished the season with 115 tackles. And with a strong finish, including notching two pressures against Kansas City in the playoffs, I have confidence that Lloyd's going to be even better. I think he's going to move past that midseason slump and come up big and be a big defensive piece for a Jacksonville Jaguars team that's looking to be on the rise in 2023. And now he's going to be playing his natural position as he played at Utah. He played inside linebacker most at college. And most of the time he's playing outside linebacker. Now that he's inside, I think he's going to be a lot more comfortable. And I think we're going to see a better, more productive, De- more productive Devin Lloyd in 2023. Moving on to the Super Bowl champ, Kansas City Chiefs. With the Chiefs having lost Juju Smith-Schuster and Nicole Hardman in free agency, it certainly looks like wide receiver will be a pressing knee for the Chiefs. However, considering Pat Mahomes' performance last season, like he, you know, he lost Tyree Kill. I think he'll be good, but one of his newer receivers will be last year's second-round pick, Sky Moore, out of Western Michigan. It's fair to say that Moore is going to see more, will see more snaps than last year, as he only saw less than thirty percent, thirty percent of snaps in twenty twenty two. However, his snap count did go up, and he scored a touchdown in the Super Bowl. Chiefs wide receiver coach Connor Embry talked of how he's gotten larger since last season, and how he's able to grasp one position rather than the multiple other receiver spots he played in his rookie year. Another thing that gives me confidence in Sky Moore going into the season is, despite his limited snaps in production, he still pull up put up a PFF grade of seventy point nine. So, despite his snap count, he his, his low snap count he's he was still productive and you know he's gonna be used a lot more this season having you know Nicole Hardman gone and Juju gone you know there's gonna be MVS and then you got Sky Moore and Kadarius Tony, and you know if I'm a defense that's got a guard uh, Sky Moore and Kadarius Tony, I'm like I'm gonna be dizzy all day you know because I really think Sky Moore is going to be a really big player one thing that really marks the one thing that really marks him in his career at Western Michigan, was how shifty, how elusive he was at receiver, despite being a smaller guy. And now, according to you know a coach, he's gotten bigger. You know, could we see like a more all around, better kind of Sky Moore? You know, maybe could it, maybe we could. And if we do see that version of Sky Moore, <clears throat> excuse me. It's going to be a very scary offseason. It's going to be a very scary year trying to guard that Kansas City Chiefs offense. Moving on to the Las Vegas Raiders staying in the AFC West. While uh, I have uh, guard Dylan Parham. and While Parham wasn't the most eye-popping rookie offensive lineman, what gives me confidence in the former Memphis Tiger is his experience. He started all 17 games in his rookie season. And yeah, he had his struggles, but he also showed a ton of upside for a sputtering Raiders online. He's a great run blocker, but his pass blocking, you know, as I mentioned with, um, as I mentioned with Akeem Iguanu, uh, his pass blocking, it leaves much to be anticipated after allowing 55 pressures and six sacks in his rookie season. But I'm confident, however, that due to his starting experience in the league and also having another full off season to hone his techniques and learn the playbook more, I think we're going to see a really good young guard for Jimmy Garoppolo this coming season for the Raiders. Still staying in the AFC West, moving on to the LA Chargers, I have guard Jamari Sawyer. It looked really bleak for the Chargers when starting tackle Rashawn Slater went down with an injury, but rookie sixth rounder Jamari Sawyer came in and held down the left tackle spot for the rest of the year. Sawyer finished the year with a 69.8 PFF grade, Excuse me, including a 76.4 pass blocking grade, which shows his incredible power prowess as a pass blocker. With Slater returning to protect uh, Herbert's blind side in 2023, Sawyer going to kick in at right guard as Zion Johnson moves to the left side. It makes sense considering uh, Zion Johnson has more experience at left guard, but the question will be if Sawyer can slide in effectively at right guard. However, prior to the move for Slaughter to play tackle, he took reps at guard in the 2022 preseason. So the more so the move may go more seamlessly than one may assume. And with his production last season, considering he was a sixth rounder, I think the I think we could really see a really solid Chargers offensive line. You've got Rashawn Slater at the blind slide, Diane Johnson at left guard, Corey Lindsley, one of the best centers in the league at center. Then you've got Jamari Sawyer, as I said, and then Trey Pipkins. I think we could see a really good uh, Chargers offensive line, and I think the most underrated player, the most underrated piece of that possible success for the Chargers offensive line is going to be Jamari Sawyer considering his incredible season in Well, it wasn't incredible, but it was definitely solid. Uh, But as a sixth-round rookie, I consider it incredible. Staying... In Los Angeles and moving on to the Rams, <clears throat> I selected running back Kyron Williams. Ever since pretty much you know every player on the Rams got hurt last year and most players from the Super Bowl winning team left, it feels like this team is headed in a very weird direction. It opens the, particularly it opens the door for many young guys and one of those are is running back Kyron Williams. With Daryl Henderson and Malcolm Brown leaving and Cam Akers lacking consistency. That gives Williams the opportunity to possibly taking the first team reps as a starter. Uh, he actually has taken first team reps, but I think what I'm, but I, look what I meant to say was it could possibly lead to him being a starter. Uh, last year, Williams dealt with a lot of injuries in the early going, but saw his playing time increase and he produced with such as the 60 yard game against the Kansas City Chiefs. Williams also averaged 2.86 yards after contact per attempt. Which basically is, oh God, I forgot the formula for this. Basically, it's yards after contact divided by rushing attempt, so you get 2.86. Um, but sh- he showcases ability to produce despite small snap samples. is also a good sign as Williams has taken, uh, like a, as I said, a good sign that he's taken many first team reps in OTA, splitting time with Cam Akers. And I think we could really see a, a very quiet rushing threat for Matt Stafford this coming season. For the Miami Dolphins, I have linebacker Channing Tindall. <clears throat> And This is a bit hard because uh, their young players are hard to pick out because 2022 and 2023's draft classes for Miami have been so bleak. Losing a first-round pick in 2023 didn't help matters. And while Tyndall's rookie season wasn't good by any means, the situation that the Dolphins linebacker crew finds themselves in, you know, it could allow for Tyndall to make more of an impact defensively. Jerome Baker and David Long Jr. will likely be the starters, but the latter of which, Long Jr., he's injured a lot. And what made Tyndall so effective for Georgia, like when they won the national championship, was his athleticism and ability to attack downhill, particularly as a blitzer. Tyndall is a perfect choice to slot in for Vic Fangio to use in blitzes due to the backup Duke Riley being poor, a poor run stuffer. So I don't think Tyndall will break out into like a Pro Bowl level player. He certainly could, but I think he I think he's going to be much more important for the Dolphins as they go into the season with Super Bowl aspirations. Moving on to the Minnesota Vikings. The games against the Dallas Cowboys and Indianapolis Colts prove and even the playoff matchup versus the Giants showed me that the defense was certainly a need. Changes also needed as Ed Donatell was replaced with former Dolphins coach Brian Flores at defensive coordinator. They also released veteran linebacker Eric Kendricks, saving up 10 million in cap space and freeing up a spot at inside linebacker. That spot is likely to be filled by Oklahoma's Brian Osamoa, whose late season performances showcase the type of player he could be. He made his debut in Week Five. then got much more snaps against the Cowboys. <coughs> he got uh, sorry. Tell me about that. He saw a higher snap count from then on, such as playing a career-high 27 on Christmas Day against the Giants, including a including a forced fumble and fumble recovery uh, of Daniel Bellinger. What helps Asamoah in this case is Flores' coaching style, which is prided on speed and explosiveness. Fortunately. Asamoa's game is based off his sideline-to-sideline speed and explosiveness, which made him an interesting prospect. Now that Asamoa has a coach that prides on his skill set, we could possibly see a surprising breakout season from the former sooner. Newing the Patriots, this one is a bit hard to pick out. There's many players that could take this spot, like Tyquan Thornton or Jack Jones. For Thornton, he could be in the line for a breakout season, for sure. Due to the Patriots shying away from taking a receiver high in the draft, however, the DeAndre Hopkins rumors have me hesitant as of right now. And as for Jack Jones, while he had a solid rookie season, his off the field issues may be alarming. Although Jones has refuted these reports, like as anybody would, I'm hesitant to go all in until we get some type of a concrete ruling. However, the Pat's first round pick, one that many people were shocked by, could break out in this coming season. Cole Strange was a stalwart on the offensive line despite a midseason slump. He played 984 total snaps. What Strange has shown is that despite New England's offensive ineptitude, he was able to remain a solid player and could see a rise in performance with a sturdier coaching staff. He showed his pass blocking ability by posting many games where he had pass blocking grades of 80 plus in many contests including a solid performance against the New York Jets. While his run blocking was poor for most of the season, he posted a season-high run blocking grade of 75.5 versus Buffalo in the final game of the year. And with a new set of offensive minds of Bill O'Brien and Joe Judge, not Matt Patricia, his play could go in a very positive direction in 2023. So look out for Cole Strange to be a top-level offensive lineman and a big contributor for the New England Patriots next season. Moving on to the New Orleans Saints, uh, I, I picked wide receiver Chris Olave. We already saw glimpses of what Olave could be in his rookie season as he caught 72 passes for 1,044 yards and 4 touchdowns as the primary receiver. Even with Michael Thomas coming back and Rashid Shaheed looking to soar, I believe Olave could be primed for an all-pro level season. However, I don't think we've seen the best of Chris Olave. Former Ohio State Buckeye split time catching passes between Andy Dalton and James Winston, with no real consistency at quarterback. What gives me confidence is that now is that now he's got Derek Carr, who did yes he did struggle last season on a turbulent Raiders team. However, he still passed for 3,500 yards last season with a much more complete offensive squad. I feel like that not only Derek Carr is going to rise, but Olave is going to transcend in 2023, and I think he could he could enter into talks as a possible top 10 receiver which you know that's a big club to be a part of but if we do see a big big season out of Olave, which I am predicting I think the I think you know we could be talking about Chris Olave as one of the best receivers in the NFL in no time moving to the New York Giants I have offensive tackle Evan Neal uh the Giants face a monster schedule next year and they're gonna need all hands on deck to help maintain the success they enjoyed last year one of those guys that'll need to rise is Evan Neal, the former top 10 pick. Neal played all of 2021 and most of his career at, at Alabama at left tackle, but then transitioned to right tackle in his rookie year. He experienced a very bad rookie year, becoming somewhat of a revolving door as a blocker with a PFF grade below 45. However, there are good signs for a bounce back in 2023. One thing that marks great offensive linemen is the ability to understand mistakes and fix them, something that former All-Pro tackle Willie Anderson has picked up on when training with Evan Neal. Additionally, Andrew Thomas had a bad rookie year, then followed it up with a remarkable 2022. You know, maybe Neal can follow in his footsteps. And if I don't have you convinced yet, what makes me confident in Neal is how he underwent a full year of transitioning to right tackle, which can help him to more quickly view mistakes and be more comfortable in a new spot basically what I'm trying to say is it's very hard for um, tackles to transition from, you know, one spot to the other because your technique has to shift. You know, you go from, you go from kick sliding with your left foot. Now you got to do it with your right foot. It's hard. And it's, and and many hall of fame level players went through this. Jonathan Ogden, you know, he transitioned from left to right. He had his struggles. He became a hall of famer. Tony Baselli for the Jaguars did the same, you know, i'm not saying evan neal can or cannot become like these players but it's been known before that big time you know tackles transitioning from left or right or vice versa they can excuse me they have struggles converting from one side to the other and i think we could see excuse me i think we could see um i think we could see evan neal do the same you know I'm really confident in Evan Neal this coming season. I think we're gonna see a better season. You know, he had that rookie season. You know, he struggled at right tackle, but now he's got a full season of that under his belt. He he can learn. Um, he can learn what to do and what to improve on, and now he's gonna have a full year, uh, well, not a full year, but a full offseason of adjusting more to right tackle. So I think he's gonna come into the season a lot more comfortable, and I think we could really see him. Uh, I think, like his teammate Andrew Thomas, who struggled moving from right to left, I think we could really see Evan Neal soar in 2023. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, <clears throat> man. God. I'm sorry, guys. Moving on to the New York Jets, uh, the other New York team. It looked like the Jets would end the season with three rookie of the year candidates. Sauce Gardner, Garrett Wilson, and Brees Hall. The latter, unfortunately, suffered an ACL tear against the Broncos, but his performance before the injury was remarkable. He had 80 carries for 463 yards and 4 touchdowns with an incredible 5.8 yards per carry. And while it looks to be seen if he can make a full comeback before for training camp or even week one, word around the league is that Hall has looked great in OTAs. That bodes well for New York as they expect their offense to take major leaps with the addition of Aaron Rodgers. I think Hall is going to come back and he's going to look like what they've been saying in um new york is that hall has come back and he's looked just as great as he did prior to his acl tear so i'm confident like if that's the case i'm confident that um i'm confident that hall can come back and he can be the top level running back for the jets and he could be another offensive weapon for aaron Rodgers. moving on to the philadelphia eagles i've got linebacker nicobe dean the departure of T.J. Edwards and Kaiser White opens the door for former CFB All-American Nakobe Dean. He mostly sat behind the two in 2022, seeing limited snaps, but his tape that we saw all saw from Georgia shows what he's capable of. He's a bit undersized, which caused him to fall in the draft, but nonetheless, he's an incredibly high-acute player with great communication, leadership, and playmaking that is so reminiscent of the best middle linebackers. What's going to help him in the tackling department, as it did with Edwards and White? is the monster interior defensive line of the Eagles, manned by Fletcher Cox, Jordan Davis, and the recent uh, first-round pick Jalen Carter. Learning under two solid linebackers and being able to learn the playbook, she should be able to help Dean become a premier defensive piece for the defending NFC champs. Staying in PA, going to the Pittsburgh Steelers, I have quarterback Kenny Pickett. As I alerted to this earlier, the first 6 games of Pickett's career showed that the criticisms of all those small hands jokes may be true. However, Pickett's next 7 contests, which were all starts, proved that he could be the true successor to Big Ben. He completed a better percentage of passes in those first 6 games, but threw 2 touchdowns to 8 picks. In his next 7, he completed a lesser percentage of passes, but threw 5 touchdowns to just 1 reception. The development is there, and yes, it hurt that he had to play under Matt Canada, but what we could be in store for in 2023 could be a more consistent and efficient Kenny Pickett. After starting his career 0-3, he went on to accumulate a 7-2 and record in his next nine starts. The development has been evident, and with a new, hopefully more efficient, he offense on the horizon. You know, you've got uh you got an approved offensive line with broderick jones you know maybe Najee harris could be primed for a bounce back season and deontay johnson and george pickens um you know we could probably see a much more efficient ceo's offense and 2023 could be a year where we see kenny pickett soar to new heights moving on to the san francisco 49ers i've had i have edge rusher drake jackson one can really make an argument here for mr relevant brock purdy but I want to branch lot out a little bit from what would be the quote unquote obvious pick. I went with the Niners' first pick in the draft. And while he showed upside from the start, as he finished with uh, six quarterback hits and three sacks, he faded out towards the end and didn't play at all in the playoffs. One of his bigger issues was getting gassed out towards the end of the season, not having enough weight to hold his own against the run. But both issues that Cal the both issues Cal Shanahan acknowledged. However, been reported that Jackson has put on weight in this offseason. It's good, and that's going to help him against the run and chips that hurt him in his first year. And while Jackson had many downs, he also showcased his past rushing prowess on many occasions. You know, it gives team and me confidence that he can make an impact alongside Nick Bosa for a vaunted Niners defense. Staying in the NFC West, I have uh for the Seattle Seahawks I have to tackle Abraham Lucas. Seahawks, the Seahawks had a monster draft class in 2022, most notably Charles Cross and Tariq Woolen. However, I feel like the Hawks breakout player will be the tackle opposite of Cross, Abraham Lucas. Third round pick out of Washington State became the full-time starter at right tackle and was very solid, posting a 68.5 PFF grade, which I think was better than Charles Cross. He did allow 9 sacks and 28 pressures, which will have to be fixed next year, but despite those struggles and having undergone shoulder surgery, the Seahawks are confident that Lucas has made a full recovery and will form a dangerous young tackle-duel alongside the aforementioned cross. With those two and other young stars like uh, to, uh, like Wollen, Devon Witherspoon, and Jackson Smith and Jigba on the rise, the youth in Seattle could continue the uh, Seahawks' consistency and could make them players for years to come. Moving to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, I've got tight end Cade Otten. The offense is looking to fall hard after Tom Brady's retirement, with the team going through the rotation of Baker Mayfield, Kyle Trask, and John Wolford at quarterback. However, the quarterback play, you know, it might take a step back. I believe the tight end play is going to take a step forward under former Washington Husky Cade Otten. He showed flashes of good play last season, taking over at tight end after the departures of multiple vets, such as uh, Rob Wankowski, Cameron Bray, and OJ Howard. Auden caught 42 passes for 391 yards and 2 touchdowns, one of those being the game winner over the LA Rams. 19 of his 42 catches were first downs, which was the second highest total for a rookie tight end in 2022. With new offensive coordinator Dave Canales, whose offense has been known to benefit tight ends, Auden could certainly see both improvements in the passing game and as a blocker. That is, if Canales uses him as a full blocker. Otten, however, he's got the ability and experience to play as a wide tight end, being able to stay on the field at all times to both block and catch passes. Otten's talked about it before of wanting to be a full wide tight end and being on the field as much as possible to produce as either a blocker or a pass catcher. So I'm very confident that we could see a possibly a breakout season and Kadon could become a, a very underrated tight end in this league. Take a water break. Moving on to the Tennessee Titans. I have a wide receiver Traylon Burks as their breakout guy. With the Titans receivers looking as big as they did in 2022, especially after losing A.J. Brown, it's paramount that Burks make a big impact in 2023 as the number one wide receiver. Despite dealing with injuries, Burks showcases the ability to play like a number, true number one, catching 33 passes for 444 yards and two touchdowns, Enough, good enough for a 74.1 PFF grade burks has been praised by quarterback ryan Tannehill for his commitment and confidence to being the top target highlighting his speed route running and size and with how thin the titans wide receivers are already i feel confident that the burks can uh, become the main target for Tannehill, and we could see Traylon burks become a top tier uh young wide receiver in this in in the nfl and finally washington commanders i have quarterback sam howell now does one end of the year game prove to me that the former Tar Heel can make an impact at quarterback for Washington? Absolutely, mainly because Howell is slated to become QB one this coming year, but also because of his performance against a playoff caliber, Dow- well, not even playoff caliber, but a playoff get Dallas Cowboys squad that, by the way, didn't even rest their starters. You know, his confidence in that game, you know, his his play in that game gives me confidence. Excuse me, while he did throw a bad pick in that game. Howell finished with 19 passes for 168 yards and a touchdown. Howell wasn't perfect during OTAs this uh, recently, but that's to be expected from a young player who only started one game last season. While Jacoby Brissett has adjusted to the new offense under Eric Bieniemy, Howell is younger and also possesses many great traits, such as his foot movement, decision-making, mobility. Those are all great keys for a young quarterback that he can build upon. The QB battle between Howell and Brissett will be one to keep an eye on during training camp as a new and electric offense under Eric Biennemi, alongside a great receiver trio of Terry McLaurin, Jahan Dotson, and Curtis Samuel. But I expect Sam Howell to have hiccups in the year. Um, he, he's go- I think he'll win the QB1 position. I think he's going to have hiccups, but I think there's going to be many a time where we get to see the talent that was on display at Chapel Hill. And I think Sam Howell is going to be the the starting quarterback for the Washington Commanders for years to come. And with that, that is going to end episode seven of the CBiz show. I want to thank you all for listening. Um, I Again, I apologize for the very long delay. It does take a while to make all of these um, ideas and then flesh them out. And I really apologize. So I'm going to try and I'm going to try and either limit, like, you know, shrink those idea possibilities. But if not, I'm also going, but, you know, if if I don't, you know, um, I'm just going to try and become more efficient with making scripts and then coming back, you know, trying to get these episodes out as quick as possible. But, again, I want to thank you all for listening. And this has been Episode 7 of The Seabish Show. Thank you all, again, thank you all for listening. I sound like a broken record. But, yeah, I'll see you all soon for Episode 8. Thank you for listening, and everyone have a great day.